Let's get right into it. State Senator Andy Minar in the midst of several very busy days down at the state capitol taking a few minutes to talk to us. Senator, we appreciate the time. How are you this afternoon? I'm good, Jim. Thanks for having me. Well, we are now more than halfway through a three-day session. What have we accomplished so far? So we're making progress on the budget. Um, I think the last time I was on your show, I said that was our uh, number one priority when we reconvened. And I would tell you we're making progress. We likely are going to see that final product, um, which is going to be slightly different than what we uh, filed yesterday. Uh, we'll likely see that later today and take uh, take a vote after what I would assume is going to be pretty hefty uh, debate in the House and the Senate tomorrow. Um, so that's number one, and I would just tell you that's what I'm spending most of my time on this week as one of the budget negotiators for the Senate Democrats. Give us the big picture on this. Are, are we seeing substantial cuts? Or are we going to try to close this gap through borrowing? How, how do we make the numbers add up? So we're not going to uh, we're not going to make um, substantial cuts. I wouldn't describe it that way. We are going to reduce spending in some areas. Uh, compared to the current fiscal year. But when you compared this uh, budget uh, proposal to what the governor introduced, there are substantial reductions. Um, But I think it's important, Jim, to note, and um, this is part of the conversation that we're having in the building, and it's going to be part of the uh, debate as we move forward. Um, State government government, should not be facilitating layoffs right now. Uh, I think the worst thing we could do is uh, pass a budget that would then require the layoff of state employees. I don't say that because of uh, because of my bias um, representing the capital city. I say that because that's going to um, add to uh, the economic misery that we're feeling right now. So we should avoid that, and we're taking steps to avoid it. So this is more of a preservation budget. Uh, we're not spending new money on things that we don't have to do. Uh, We're not issuing cuts to schools or uh, to state agencies that would result in in layoffs, for example. There are some slight reductions where we can have efficiencies, but I would describe this uh, budget proposal as it sits today as a preservation budget. But we were told that the revenue shortfall over the the current fiscal year, the next fiscal year, could be in the range of $7 billion. So how how do you call it a balanced budget if you have that much less revenue coming in, but you're not making substantial reductions to spending? Well, that's over a two-year period, um, first of all, that number. Um, Number two, uh, we have significant federal income uh, coming both for the end of this fiscal year and next fiscal year in the form of uh, the CARES Act, in the form of COVID-19 response, um, direct expenses, for example, at the National Guard or at IEMA for a direct response uh, cost from the state. And then I would presume eventually, and I don't think this is a wild presumption, eventually there's going to be another uh, bill passed by Congress that aids state and local governments. Um, so those three things are a substantial different uh, in years past. Um, this budget is going to be based on some borrowing. There is there is no doubt about that. Um, that is a piece of this. It's something that the federal government has put in place uh, from the Treasury Department to state governments, and we will take advantage of that. So when you put all of those things together, there's, there's some substantial differences in years past, uh, the biggest of which is uh, a federal a group of federal aid packages um, that, that undoubtedly are going to be helpful to the state in the coming fiscal year. 
lawmakers are back for the first time in more than two months. Your first chance as a group to uh, weigh in on the governor's actions over the last two months, where he's been pretty much calling the shots on his own through uh, emergency orders and things. Uh, And there have been a lot of lawmakers clamoring to say, we need to have some input in this too, or at the very least to say, we need to clarify what exactly are the governor's powers in an emergency. And yet it looks like those questions are not going to be taken up by the legislature. Why? Oh, no, I don't think so. I disagree with that. Um, you know, first of all, I don't, um, if lawmakers want to have input, they should have their input. You don't have to be in the Capitol building to give your input. Um, you know, every step of the way here, I've been communicating to state agencies, uh, numerous state agencies about things in the district that I represent. So having input doesn't require lawmakers to be physically present in Springfield. Voices can be heard over the telephone. Um, they can be heard over Zoom and WebEx and all of those things. That's, that's what I've been doing. Um, number two, um, Responding to crises, uh, whether it's a public health crisis or a tornado or, you know, some natural disaster, um, is not best uh, suited for governing by committee. Uh, There are executive powers in Illinois for a reason, just like every other state. And um, every governor before our current governor, Governor Pritzker, and every governor after him are going to have those executive powers. There, There will be some right sizing of this. There will be through the budgetary process. Uh, through other things. And, and, and that's not pro or um, con uh, Governor Pritzker. It's just the natural course of events uh, because of uh, the substantial amount of work that has had to uh, been done by the administration in response to COVID-19. So there will be some balancing of those things, and much of that will take place in our budget process. But but, you know, the, the, the idea, though, that, uh, you know, and I've talked about this on your show before, Jim, the idea that, that lawmakers, um, you know, feel like they don't have a voice. You don't, you don't have to be in Springfield in session to make your voice heard. I certainly don't wait. Um, if there's an issue facing a business owner, um, when I hang the phone up from that business owner, I pick up the phone and call a state agency on their behalf. You don't have to be in session to do that, for example. But you you can't vote until you're in Springfield. You can't have the sort of binding votes that the legislature takes on important issues. Do any of the governor's powers need more clarity? There are multiple lawsuits about this right now. The governor has, for more than two months, essentially handled a lot of this unilaterally. Is And, and I know you just referenced this, but should the legislature have more of a role in this or, or at the very least be able to, to contribute that sort of binding role uh, remotely? Yeah, so that, that's a lot to unpack, Jim, so let me try to get through it. So first of all, yes, I think the, the powers of, um, and, and we have to be careful, this isn't about J.B. Pritzker, right? This is about the executive branch. It's not about one person. Um, questions related to balance of power. So um, we, yes, we should clarify some things because there's things that uh, this governor, Governor Pritzker, has had to do that no other governor has had to do. So that requires us, I believe, to review what's been done, take a appropriate critical look at it, and, and I don't mean critical in terms of negative, I mean critique it and determine what needs to change. That, that's what we do as a legislature, and that's what we're doing now. So the answer to your question is yes. Um, that is absolutely what we should do. That's what we're in the business of doing as a legislative branch. In terms of the budget, you know, we are the appropriators. So all of, all of those cards are in our hands. And we can't hamstring the governor because that wouldn't be good for response to COVID-19. 
But at the same time, we shouldn't just hand them the checkbook and say, good luck. We have to strike a balance. And that's what we're trying to do right now. Let's talk about unemployment in the state. As you mentioned, uh, you don't want to ha- see state workers getting laid off to add to uh, an enormous pile of unemployment uh, insurance claims, uh, well over a million since March. And today it was announced a 16% plus unemployment rate in the state. And yet we continue to hear day in and day out about ongoing chronic problems at the Department of Employment Security. The governor says they're working on it, but the problems don't seem to be letting up. What more can and must be done to address that? So first of all, we can't um, we can't cut the agency's budget. So let's start right there. The agency's budget has been decimated over recent years because because um, because lawmakers on both sides of the aisle have have um, shown up on radio shows and on TV and said we're trimming the fat from the state. Well, that's that's coming home to roost, Jim, it, and it is in a big way right now. And what's happening at IDES is indicative of what's happened at so many state agencies over the years. So uh, the governor back in February proposed a budget that substantially increased the headcount at IDES, and we should approve that. We should get those people on board. We should get them to work, and we should get them to approving unemployment applications. Um, Number two, um, I think, and I'm a critic of bringing in outside help from private business when it comes to government functions. There has to be appropriate checks and balances there. Um, But I think that should be used to a greater degree than it already has today at IDS. I think that would be another good move uh, for the administration beyond. Now, they've done that, but they, they should do more of it. Uh, because this is this is all hands on deck, and we have to utilize that resource if, if it's available. And I think that could be available if they did it. State Senator Andy Menard is live with us here this afternoon. Senator, a lot of discussion today about vote by mail. Uh, we know that there are some folks in the country, including in the uh, highest office in the land, who are claiming that that is a recipe for fraud, uh, that it will lead to uh, to widespread ballot stuffing, et cetera. Uh, we've got a pretty robust vote-by-mail system here in Illinois anyway. Do we need to change it? So I'm for people voting. I, I've, you, I've, I've carried bills that, um, that have removed barriers. Um, I, I authored the automatic voter registration bill, which was a bipartisan uh, compromise between Republicans and Democrats signed into law by Bruce Rauner. Um, we should be facilitating more people voting um, if you're 18 and you're a citizen in the United States, the Constitution says you should have the right to vote. So the answer uh, to your question, in my opinion, Jim, is yes. Uh, we we should we should go that direction, especially at a time when there's considerable public health concerns, and we have no idea what the landscape's going to look like in November. So this is a good move on the part of state government. It's unfortunate it's become partisan. I mean, I don't I don't know when in the United States of America voting and the ability for people to vote becomes partisan. I mean, that's where we're at today, Jim, in the United States. And we need to take a step away from that because there are literally people in elected office today, especially in the federal government, that are, that are using this issue uh, to eventually suppress the vote because they believe it's going to positively impact them when election returns are counted on election day. So if you're a citizen and you're 18 in the United States, you should be able to vote and we should make it as easy as possible, regardless of who you vote for. 
Senator, I know you've been uh, talking about uh, remote learning. We've had to uh, implement this on the fly in a lot of districts around the state over the last few weeks. We don't know how much we're going to have to rely on it this fall. We do know that in a lot of parts of Illinois, uh, our resources haven't been up to the task. So what is happening along those lines? And, and what do you know at this point about how much we may have to rely on remote learning in the fall? So I believe schools are going to open up in the fall. Um, I believe that um, we will see things um, in terms of what's happening on the ground in schools different than what we're used to. Um, But I've said consistently, um, this situation right now with remote learning is unsustainable in our system. It is just unsustainable. That is not, by the way, Jim, discrediting what educators and administrators and parents, me being one of those with three children, have done um, literally overnight to get where we are today. So I don't want to diminish that work because it was a Herculean effort around the state, but it's not a sustainable system. So we have to figure out how to adjust so that schools can open in the fall and we can preserve health and safety for our kids and teachers and staff. I think we can get that done. Any idea on on where we start? Is it just more money? Is it better training? Is it more investment in broadband infrastructure in uh, underserved areas of the state? What does it take? I think it takes all of those things. And unfortunately, uh, so many things during this pandemic have exposed the cracks and the crevices in our system where um, the most vulnerable fall into. Um, we've, We've shed a spotlight on those things. Um, it's going to take time. Unfortunately, we had a we had a caucus today, and um, uh, many members of our caucus we had a discussion about what you just you know the question you just asked, asked especially in uh, in terms of access to uh, the internet and the, the the lack of availability of the internet and what happens when when a family that has a, a dial up service, for example, or a service that uh, doesn't have much bandwidth is then forced to manage e-learning for school. What happens to that family? What does it mean for that family? Um, it's not a pretty picture. So we have a lot of work to do on that front. This pandemic has exposed those things. We just should not forget them. You know, we can't forget these things uh, once uh, coronavirus is, is behind us. Senator, uh, there was a mountain uh, of things to be done by the legislature this week, uh, and this is supposed to be wrapped up tomorrow. Is that going to be it? Do you expect you'll be here this weekend? Will you come back next week, or or is this it? What doesn't get done by tomorrow doesn't get done. So I I think it's an open question. I think it's it's possible that we're going to finish tomorrow, uh, but we still have a sizable amount of work to do. I mean, we've only, um, you know, and I say only, we've only been – in session now for, uh, you know, 24 hours or a little bit more than that. Um, and we have one more day on our calendar. And I, I would just say this, and I've said this to everybody who's asked me, we shouldn't adjourn until our work's done. And uh, we have a lot of very important work to do. Uh, we have to have a budget in place. Um, that That's imperative. I'm hoping that's going to be a bipartisan vote. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but we should be in session until our work is complete. State Senator Andy Menard, appreciate your time. We'll be checking in to see how things are going. Thanks again. You bet. Thanks, Jim.